Looking for a fun way to win 25 times your money this football and basketball season? Test your skills on Prize Picks, the most exciting way to play daily fantasy sports. Just select two or more players, pick more or less on their projection for a wide variety of stats, and place your entry. It's as easy as that. If you have the skills, you can turn $10 into $250 with just a few taps. Easy gameplay, quick withdrawals, and injury insurance on your picks are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Ready to test your skills? Join the Prize Picks community of more than 7 million players who have already signed up. Right now, Prize Picks will match your first deposit up to $100. Just visit prizepicks.com/play100 and use code play100. That's code play100 at prizepicks.com/play100 for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks, daily fantasy sports made easy. Alarm. Take MitoCue. Run, shower, breakfast, kids to school, work time, home time, dinner time, fun time, bedtime. When you're leading a full life, MitoQ can make all the difference. MitoQ is a science-based cell health supplement that helps your trillions of cells generate renewable daily energy. Because energy is renewable, time is not. Discover more at MitoQ.com. That's M-I-T-O-Q.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode of Red Inca, we look at the World Cup because, you know, it just finished. And so I got someone who follows every game about as closely as I do. Matt Roller, assistant editor, ESPN Crick Info. Basically, Matt and I look at every single team in the second round and what they did, what they might have done, all these sorts of things. 12 teams, several hot takes, probably. All right, I have invited you on uh, because you're one of the few people, a bit like me, who's um, obsessed with every team. And you were sent out there with Crick Info to look at the entire tournament. You got there just at the end of uh, round one, um, where Simon Wilde um, got you a positive test. So then you had to go into <laughs> quarantine almost straight away. Uh, you and Wigmore, I think there was a few others that went into quarantine. So probably Freddie, I suppose. Um, from that, from we're going to skip round one only because you got there late and those teams we could, I'll talk about um, a separate time. But what I have done and what I've told you very, very briefly, and you're going to learn on this podcast is I've ranked these teams like in a power list of how I think they went in this tournament. And I've put down a couple of things here about each team. And we're just going to go through all the teams from worst to best. So I'm going to start with Bangladesh. Uh, I put them last, I put them under Scotland, which will infuriate some Bangladesh fans. But actually, considering all the feedback I've had, probably make a lot of Bangladesh fans very happy. My big thing with them is, like, if they couldn't do it in this tournament, on in these conditions, which are the most Bangladesh-like conditions they're going to play a tournament unless they get another one at home, which they never will again, uh, when are they ever going to be any good? Yeah, and not least given the fact that Tamim didn't play because he didn't really fancy it um, and the fact that Shakib is not going to be around forever. And as we saw in the last two games, um, losing Shakib is not like losing most players because he bats three or four and bowls four overs every game. Quite often in the power play, he'll bowl one or maybe even two and quite often he'll bowl one at the death as well. Mm. Um, so it's like, yeah, losing Shakib is like losing two players at once and they're probably going to lose him in a couple of T20 World Cups time. Uh, and yeah, it doesn't look great, does it? I, I I was hugely disappointed with Bangladesh, to be honest. I thought they would be all right. Um, 
I don't know whether that's sort of getting too sucked into their results in bilateral series because obviously they do play in pretty extreme conditions at home. I mean, that Australia series, um, probably the best example of it. But mm. looking at their attack, I thought Tuscan Ahmed looked pretty good in the first couple of games in round one, especially. Um, you know, we, we've seen what the Fizz can do in, um, in IPLs for a number of years now. They seem to have something... Um, in terms of a, a well enough rounded attack that you could see them restricting teams okay and then possibly enough experience in the batting lineup, possibly enough decent young players coming through that they could, um, you know, win a couple of games, maybe give give a couple of big teams a bloody nose in the Super 12s. But yeah, they were just absolutely terrible, weren't they? Um, well, I mean, you talked about the Fizz. So yeah. he had a terrible tournament after a very good IPL. I thought he was even better in the second half of the IPL than the first half. I wonder if that's just his shoulder again playing up from being overworked because he had to play in them back to back. But he was disappointing. I thought Taskin Armand was still good. But the mm. thing is that they had nothing to defend. Yeah. Because, right? they, yeah. they, you know, they kept they lost the toss a lot as well, although eventually it didn't really matter because they were getting bowled out for 84 every game or whatever it was. But... They, they had nothing to defend. I think the Sri Lanka game is the only game where I thought they put on a total where they bo- I wouldn't say their bowlers let them down. I think they got a bit confused with their tactics when I, I don't think they expected any of the Sri Lankan middle orders to be any good. And then suddenly <laughs> they got they got completely hosed by them. But they just didn't. They couldn't make runs uh, all the way through the tournament realistically. And you know that's how Scotland knocked them off as well. And uh, you know th- their bowling, as you said, was good. But not that good. But you take Shakib out of that t- team, as you said before. I, I wrote this, and people were like, "Well, look, you know, they weren't doing any better, you know, beforehand." I was like, "There, there is no replacement for Shakib." Right? Yeah, it's like, I mean, this perennial argument on TikTok with people about Australian all rounders, and they're like, you know, um, uh, James Faulkner is an all rounder, and Glenn Maxwell's an all rounder, and Mitchell Marsh. I'm like, no, Shakib is a genuine all rounder. Everyone else is a batter who can chip in with a couple of overs or a, or a bowler who can hit, right? Shakib is the genuine article. Um, and, and I suppose the other thing is you talked about the home conditions there. My worry now is are their home conditions so turgid and weird? And I'm not just talking about the, 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 the games that we see, but all the way through, there's something about the clay content in Bangladesh which seems so different to the rest of Asia, let alone, you know, the rest of the world. I wonder if you can actually just stand upright and ping the ball. Like, do you have that confidence? Because all of their batters just look absolutely terrified to take any risks at all. Yeah, well, I I actually thought it was really interesting. He only sort of touched upon it, but Shane Watson, who was great on commentary, by the way, throughout it, throughout Uh, the comp. Tournament, uh, the best uh, commentator in the tournament. Who had him being better than Dale Stain by that? Dis- Dale Stain just said nicknames, and Shane yes. Watson just came in with like a, like a notebook of information every every stint. It was incredible. Yeah, Sorry. it was amazing. Well, actually, in game one, Watson was was talking about the fact that um, Australia hadn't brought up short mid wicket when South Africa were like fifty for four after eight overs and was criticising Finch. And I thought this is a, just amazing insight. Anyway, Watson was basically saying in this Bangladesh game that he there was a season I think it was three or four years ago now where he. Uh, didn't bother with the big bash because he could earn a bit more money in the um, Bangladesh Premier League. Yeah. And he was saying he was going over there and thought that there was no harder um, T20 competition to succeed in as an overseas batter because of how extreme the conditions are. And I was sort of thinking a bit about that and thinking, well, if the, these guys are only playing on these pitches, that can't be useful for your development when you're then playing against fast bowlers. And also because Bangladesh don't get the opportunities to play, you know, they, they don't play a five-match series away in Australia or, or England. Yeah. 
I don't think their batters have that opportunity to do that. And they also don't really get franchise gigs. Because if you think of like a team like West Indies or Pakistan, their, their batters might get an overseas contract to play in like the Blast or the PSL or CPL or maybe the Big Bash. Whereas Bangladesh batters just, just don't really. So they play a huge percentage of their cricket at home on pitches that, yeah, really aren't good preparation to, to face fastballers. And yeah, looking ahead to, um, to, to next year's World Cup, they have a year to suddenly become much better players of fast bowling mm. on tough pitches and I think they go straight into the Super 12s again and you can definitely see them um, losing every game again um, on current form they look really terrible throughout that comp I thought um, and yeah interested to see who who keeps their place or whatever it looks like I think they picked a squad today and Mushvik has already uh, been dropped and I don't I don't really think that's a particularly good um, necessarily a good move in the long term but um, yeah what can I you mean, do I mean so when I when I did the data on, on their team so it was incredible like I did a scatter plot of it well, I can't remember. It must have been by average by strike rate in the BPL. And all the guys who were, had a good strike rate were international. And he was the only player. I had a cutoff. I can't remember what that strike rate was, 130. He was the only international player. Uh, sorry, the only domestic player other than um, Mashrafi might have been there, but with an average of like 12 or something. Right? Yeah. They're the only two about, uh, on the other side. Like the low, When overseas players go there, they do it. So to drop him... It would that would seem to be, and I don't think. But this is the thing: if if I was a franchise, I would never hire him. There's yeah, nothing course, in his yeah. T Twenty game game that says anything. And there's basically, other than Shakib and, and and the Fizz, there's no one really there that you're like, yeah, you would be that interested in. All right, we've done we've done the poor Bangladesh um, team. That's Matt Matt Roller. If you want to follow him on Twitter, Bangladesh fans. I was the one saying all the nice things there. Um, <laughs> uh, Scotland. I, I find that Scotland was quite interesting because as someone who's worked for them. Their batting is really what dominates at the lower level and their bowling is very good and sometimes, um, you know, uh, even better than that. They, they almost flipped the script. I really don't think they batted particularly well in this tournament, but I thought their bowlers overcompensated for that. Yeah, they were they were quite interesting. Well, it, it's funny you say that as well because I think the guy that I had highest expectations of out of Scotland's attack coming into this tournament was arguably the guy who underperformed the most, Brad, Wheel. Brad Wheel, who had a yeah, great... Was, you're right. I mean, he had I a mean, great he, last season and then had a good 100 season. He was the only guy in London Spirit who, who played at all well, who sort of increased his reputation over that comp. And he had actually a pretty poor comp. So He might have... I haven't looked at the numbers, but I, I think he might have had the statistically worst... Um, you know, of the full-time bowlers in this tournament, I think he might have ended up being the worst when it comes to economy. And it's like, as you said, he he came out of that. Scotland have huge high hopes for him as well. Yeah. Um, and he just, he couldn't get it together, could he? Yeah, I, I, I sort of don't think it's a long-term thing with him. But I, no. one thing that's interesting when you talk about like the discrepancy there, I think the fact we have to, when we're talking about like the associate teams in this tournament, I think you have to consider all the long-term stuff. So um, firstly, the fact that, these guys aren't really used to being in a bubble and Scotland by the end of that comp, they played three games in five or six days right at the end. And I think they've been in a bubble for like eight or nine weeks by the end of that because they played a huge heap of games in the Gulf beforehand. Um, so that that's one long-term factor. And then the other is the fact that um, all their players, well, most of their players who were centrally contracted at least were on furlough last year. So, you know, the government were paying their wages and they weren't playing, they weren't allowed to play cricket. Um, and I think more of their Bowlers have uh, county contracts, so Wheel and Josh Davey. Sharif has played a bit of county cricket last summer, um, so might that might have played into it a little bit. I don't know. Maybe I'm stretching and looking for a, well, for an explanation when there's not one there. But um, I mean, Munzi did Munzi play blast for Kent, didn't he? I, th I thought yeah. he, he did okay. Uh, look, I mean, oh, it's it's. It, I don't think it's the end of the world. My bigger worry with their batting is that it's quite old. 
Yeah. Right? I mean, I don't think that's going to be a problem for the next tournament, but where they go, like, they really need to find someone in that top four or top five who, who's, you know, who can make runs consistently at the pace that they have been, because I do think that is their core. But the professionalism thing, I think, is so important. Like, mm. the fact that they just weren't being able to work on their games. I mean, I, I, I got messages from a couple of boys last year just going, if you hear of any small franchise jobs <laughs> out there, you know, let, let us know. And, it, you know, that, just because they needed to hit the ball, right? It's, yeah, it's, yeah. You know, it's it's... They weren't saying, usually it's, you know, can you get me into a really good league because I want to play in that league. This time it was like, literally, if there's a stupid league that you know of that has a spot, I just want to go and play. I think that's the thing. Kyle's uh, comments at the press conference, I can't remember which one, but it was towards the end of the tournament. I think that, I think that he really wants to professionalize Scottish cricket and it's still kept back in the, you know, and, you know, I could, as a former employee, I could say this, I still think there's a real amateur part of Scottish cricket. Although I will say this, I, I think they seem to have the biggest support staff of any associate. There was like, when we were at the, when we were at the qualifiers, there was about three of us. Suddenly there's about 20 people there, but <laughs> I, I do feel that there's a real um, amateur feel still to Scottish cricket. And, and I think that comes from the lower levels. I don't think it's the players or anything um, or even the administration, but there's a, I remember a similar thing happened with Hong Kong where the better Hong Kong got, the more that like the Hong Kong um, the people who ran Hong Kong cricket were a little bit like, yeah, but we won't be able to use the nets as much now. If, <laughs> you know, and, and I'm not saying it's quite like that in Scottish cricket, but I do get the feeling that they like the amateur side of cricket, whereas that's going to keep Scot- Scotland from becoming the next Ireland or Afghanistan, really. Yeah, I, I just yeah, just sort of looking through their, their squad in that tournament. I think you mentioned Munzee. I think he it, maybe one of the other things with associates is maybe ten years ago a team wouldn't have seen Munzee bat when they're coming up against him. So you suddenly open the bowling to Munzee, you kind of guess what he's good at, and then yeah. after he plays four reverse sweeps in the first over, you go, oh right, maybe we should have a guy back on the reverse sweep. Whereas what you saw right from the beginning in this uh, World Cup is that teams have lost that competitive advantage because. Their games are streamed. Analysts sort of bother to do the put the hours in before they play against a team like Scotland. So instantly, you know, I think Pakistan. He, he played some pretty horrible innings. It was like nineteen off thirty or something like that. But immediately they had guys out behind square, both sides of the wicket, um, completely choking off his strong zone. So he, mm. he was having to adapt against a really good bowling attack and found it really tough. Um, and I think I think um, Kurtz has said as well. Just you know. These guys do have, a lot of them do actually have pretty good records against playing like top quality spins. So someone like Callum McLeod played played a f- pretty famous innings mm. against Rashid Khan a few, I think three or four years ago. Um, but when you sort of factor in the lack of um, high level preparation in the probably year or 18 months leading into the comp, um, plus the fact that the pitches were pretty low for the most part, especially in their sort of Sharjah games, they found it really, really tough. Um, so sort of before their game against Afghanistan, which was their first Super 12s game, I was thinking, you know, these guys have a track record of doing okay against guys, against mm. bowlers like Majib and Rashid. They could be okay. And they really found it tough because the ball didn't bounce. Um, and that that sort of, yeah, you can negotiate probably one of the two, but the combination of low bounce and that quality spin, um, they, they really struggled against. And yeah, I don't know. I think they're going to, I think they're going to have to stick with the same core because there isn't a very big player pool. Um, uh, you know, maybe Kurtz will probably have to retire at some point in the next few years. But um, yeah, uh, yeah, interested to see where they go next. Um, we should also I mean, obviously next... mention Mark Watt. He's he was like he was he was arguably my my favorite bowler of the comp at some point because he is he's so incredibly defensive. Um, but 
was unbelievably good at that job for the first um, three Super 12 games and all of the qualifying games and just barely wanted to run a ball and has so much variation for someone who bowls um, the bowling style that lends itself to the fewest variations possible, mm. if that makes sense. You literally, slow left arm is almost everyone just has one ball. Um, some of them turn, some of them don't. And he uses the crease so well. He changes his pace so much. He changes his release points. Um, and yeah, for the most part, it went, it went really well. He sort of got hit a couple of times towards the end where people suddenly were waiting for that 25-yarder that he bowls from yeah. in line with the umpire. But um, yeah, amazing exposure for him as well. And I think he's playing like T10 off the back of it and hopefully he gets a few more contracts and stuff like that and um, can develop in a way that, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite difficult to as a um, player from a country that doesn't play enough international cricket. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, you know, I've been a big fan of him for a long time. I, I will say that he actually, I don't think he bowled a left arm wrist spin in, in in this tournament. So he's actually got even more variation for a guy with like literally almost no variation. All right, uh, Namibia. So uh, let's start with the political um, part of this. That uh, Picky, oh God, I've forgotten his name. Picky of France, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Picky of France played four games, bowled four overs, I think faced, Nine balls, 11 balls in the tournament. That's not good enough um, from Namibia. I, I actually think I saw him bowl in the qualifiers. I think he's a good off spinner. So I think part of it might have been matchups at times, but they did. There's no point having him in the side and him not bowling or batting. Uh, that's not helping anyone. But that all, all comes from the fact that Namibia is basically four cricket clubs who are representing a very new nation, I suppose, in many ways. Yeah, it's it, it. I think um. So Ferdos Munda from Cricket Info did a good interview with um Gerhard Rasmus and a few other yeah. senior players in the squad, and they were sort of talking about the fact that yeah, it's it, it's such a small sport in Namibia. It's almost like polo is in the UK or something like that. It's just so inherently posh. It's so small. Um, there are what five pitches. There are mm. eighteen players to choose from. So it's it, despite the fact that it's hugely unrepresentative that squad. I think that yeah, Picky of France and then uh, Ben Chicongo. I think he's called played played one game as well. They um, used I to think have they were um, the two black guys in the squad. But... Yeah, they had another player. Um, oh, is his name Shivago? Who I think retired during COVID mm. as well. Um, and obviously Zane Green, um, yeah. you know, is, um, uh, I think Zane Green might be a mixed race. I'm not sure what his uh, actual ethnicity is. But yeah, uh, look, we understand why, but then picking someone, mm. picking picky yeah. and not actually allowing him to bowl was was a bad sign. Uh, I think that if they are, go I mean, they're going to come back in the next tournament. They've got to find, or they've got to, they can't find anyone new players. They've got to develop their top order players to be able to score at more than a runner ball. I'm yeah. not saying they're going to have to score at a strike rate 140, but it's got to be more than a runner ball, doesn't it? Yeah, well, they, they had a, re a really unusual setup. We see almost every smaller T20 team, if you have a handful of good batters, they will move to the top three to yeah. face as many balls as possible. Whereas Namibia kind of locked in this idea that they were going to have the bomb squad, as they called it. So Erasmus, JJ Smith and Visa at four, five and six, which is pretty unusual. And I don't know, kind of worked. Smith had a pretty horrible comp um, and Erasmus yeah. obviously had a broken finger. So it's hard to read too much into his batting. Visa was really good. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know. I don't want to write that off as an idea just based on um, a pretty pretty short tournament. But um, yeah, no, you're right. There, there were definitely some pretty pretty turgid power plays with the bat where they were sort of 25 for one and stuff like that and you sort of yeah wonder how they'd managed to get to that point but i, I can't i could be wrong but i think they had three players with a strike rate over run a ball in the, yeah by that the sounds end of the right tournament. 
Yeah. Like, like when I looked at it, because I felt they'd been better than that, but part of that was because their bowling had been quite good. Um, and but but there was also like the game they beat Scotland, that was about the worst possible chase. Um, and I can see again they they're starting slow, keeping wickets in hand so that the guys would smash it at the end. But geez, they made an absolute certain victory into you know they just got over the line in the end. So uh, I think that's uh, that's the negatives from them. But hopefully. The fact that they did have some good games, I'm sure they got good press back home. Mm. It's not going to, I don't think it's going to change anything in the next World Cup or or the World Cup afterwards um, if they qualify for that one. But if you look at what, you know, what happened with Ireland in 2007, we know that there is a then a generation who at least turn on the TV and go, oh, this is a sport, I can play this. And that that has to be the next step uh, in in Namibia because they can't keep picking from, as you said, 18 or 20 players. Yeah. And they do actually have quite a similar situation to Ireland in a way and that a lot of their players um, do get to play South African domestic cricket or they, they play against South African yeah. domestic teams a lot of the time themselves, um, which which does sort of lend itself to, yeah, improvement, more opportunities, all that sort of thing. Um, and is yeah, is a, clearly a massive factor. And even if they can sort of, you know, there's a few South African-born guys in their squad. I think Ruben Trumpelman is South African, but sort of adopted Namibian. So if they can, you know, I, I don't want to use the word poach, but if they can... Um, if they can sort of they cherry, can do some, cherry pick yeah, a few guys or whatever, some and, Scottish passport hunting, Scotland or oh, the Netherlands passport hunting. Oh, so you know your <laughs> grandmother once we happened to be born here. Um, yeah, that sort of stuff. I, I think you could certainly do that. Uh, okay, uh, West Indies. So I thought West Indies were a legitimate chance to win the whole thing, and they're lucky to be ahead of Namibia on my list, I think. I mean, they were putrid. By the end of that last game was embarrassing, the way that it just became a beer game against mm. Australia. Um, they they don't have time to rebuild before the next uh, World Cup, but I don't think they have to because I think they've got a lot of very good young players out there. My biggest thing for them is that their bowling attack is nowhere near the levels that it was in 2012, even 2014 or 2016. Yeah, I think that is actually a massive factor as well um, that probably got underplayed a little bit in the analysis of why they went out because they had such a weird comp because, you know, the 55 all out against England is, you know, Pollard said afterwards it was a game that you basically have to bin and move on, which I think is probably the right thing. It's what West Indies have always done. They've always had a high variance approach. Um, that's that happens when you're a team that tries to hit a load of sixes. There will be times where every attempt at a six um, happens to find long on, and you kind of yeah. just have to hold up your hands and say that's fine. Um, and then in the second game, they had you know you probably shouldn't have selected Lendl Simmons in the first place, but he played one of the all-time worst T20 innings. Um, so I reckon I, I re- I'm not to defend him at all because it was what you just said it was, but. I think they, they were so petrified about what had happened the game before that they literally told him to bat through the innings and then he just got stuck, Yeah, right? And he couldn't get out of it. So I don't think it was like I, – I think a lot of people were thinking that he just wasn't up to it, but I think what happened was he tried to get to 20 balls, make sure that they got through the innings, and then he had no backlift. He was, yeah. he was trying to hit the ball at the end with no backlift. It was, it was like watching – it was like watching someone in club cricket, you know, the old guy, the 55-year-old, and it gets to the point where it's like, oh, we've got to score, you know, a runner ball to win this game. It's like, I don't know how to score a runner ball. <laughs> That's what Lendl Simmons looked like at the end. But, yeah, I mean, that was bizarre. I would say their batting is less of a worry in that, you know, you, you well, you've got Evan Lewis, you've got um, Fabian Allen, you've got Puran, you've got Hetmeyer. You know, there's plenty, you know, not to mention guys like, you know, Powell and Rutherford and, and outside the squad. 
I can see how they could stock that back up pretty quick. You know, mm. they're still going to have Pollard for the next tournament, aren't they? So absolutely not too worried about that. I would, d- I doubt that they're going to have another tournament where they bat that bad. Would be my guess. Yeah, but, I agree but how with do that. they get better with the ball? It's tough, isn't it? I think firstly they. They seem to pick quite a defensive attack, I think. So if you yeah. look at the guys that they could have picked, I think it was a big loss, actually, and probably an underrated loss was Obed McCoy because he, people are talking about him as a sort of next next big talent. Um, but they didn't they didn't give a single game to O'Shane Thomas, who was bowling 150Ks in the last CPL. I don't know whether, um, it, you know, maybe that was just a speed gun thing and you get suckered in, but he's a, he's a genuine attacking option with a new ball, um, bowls high pace, which was pretty effective um, throughout the World Cup for the most part. Um, I think it was an opportunity missed that you don't give someone like him a game when you're giving games to a 37, I want to say, year old Ravi Rampal. Mm. Um, and gen- generally, I think their their attack was pretty defensive throughout the time they were successful. So I think in 2012 to 2016, with the exception of maybe Narine, who you could say at that point was an attacking bowler, most of them were sort of guys that would contain and take their wickets through um, scoring pressure rather than genuine attacking bowlers. Whereas I think now you maybe the game, people have been talking about West Indies mm. struggling because the game has been evolving. I think one of the ways that the game's, game has evolved since 2014, 2016 is that you need more atta- genuine attacking options in your attack. And if you look at the sort of the attack they were ending with, which was Rampal, Bravo, um, you know, Pollard and Russell sharing overs because they had to. Akil Hossein, who's pretty good, but again, pretty defensive. Um, guys like that. I think Jason Holder as well towards the end. There are a lot of guys who are, who, who are sort of extremely solid, economical um, to some extent, guys who are bowling 80 miles an hour. But in terms of a a point of difference, a leg spinner, a genuine fast bowler, they really didn't have one of those throughout most of that competition. And I'm not sure that you can get away with that in the way that you once could, because rather than um, sort of soaking up dots, teams are play- generally playing with higher intent. Pe- teams are generally seeing that um, seeing the batting lineup West Indies have and thinking we can't just get par, we need to get slightly above par, but we have an opportunity to do that because we can sell ourselves and these guys don't have the pace to trouble mm. us. So, yeah, I think it's a massive change. You look at the, the quality of the spin attack, when you could, even compared to, obviously, Narine didn't play in 2016, but Suleiman Ben and Samuel Badger in 2016 versus, you know, maybe Hussein will go on to be a really good bowler, but him and Hayden Walsh this time around, it's a, a huge drop-off. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, with the bat, I think I, it's tricky. I, do, I, do, I definitely don't think that um, this tournament invalidates West Indies' approach and that you shouldn't try and hit sixes. I think that the combination of the age profile of this West Indies squad, where you have very few players in the sort of peak years between, say, 26, 32, I think you basically had Lewis, uh, Holder, and then a couple of it, guys who don't play much T20, like Ross and Chase, of that age profile. Everyone was either still pretty young or probably a little bit too old. Um, when you consider that, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I think, and when you consider the conditions where UAE generally is somewhere where it's not the end of the world if you're a team that hits more fours than sixes, whereas in 2016 in India, you're playing on a lot of small ground, so hitting sixes was more important than hitting fours. It basically was a cocktail where you can see why West Indies completely bombed, which was, um, yeah, they, they had an old squad, They the conditions didn't suit them, and they happened to have a few really bad games. And if you have one terrible team performance with the bat and one terrible individual performance with the bat in your first two games against England and South Africa, the the format basically means that you're pretty much knocked out solely as a result of that. 
Yeah, yeah, I think that's a big part of it. I also think that they in not picking Jason Holder. There's a lot of lot of nonsense coming out of the West Indies that Jason Holder was not in the side, but Ravi Rampal was, and it's like, well, they're not the same player. Uh, yeah. And realistically, I think if Obed had been um, fair, f- fun, Obed McCoy fact, I got him his agent, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> um, uh, I, I think if he'd been fit, he would have played through. He would have taken over that role and would be a more attacking option, and is yeah. as good a death bowler, maybe even a better death bowler. Uh, I think they didn't quite. If, if they picked Holder. Right, they could have gone into every team with, let's say, Bravo uh, holder listed at eight and Bravo listed at nine. They could have even then put Hayden Walsh listed at ten or something, right? And just be like, we're going to do this. They kind of felt like they were halfway between those two thinkings. Like having Lendl Simmons at the front tells me they were a little bit worried about losing wickets. Um, and uh, you know, having Ravi Rampal tells me they were a little bit worried about you know the quality of their all round bowlers. And that might also be that Andre Russell and Dwayne Bravo are no longer at their best. I mean, that's why Bravo is retiring. He's still a very good player, but he doesn't play every game for Chennai anymore. Um, and Andre Russell is not the bowler he, he used to be, just because he can't do that. And he's an attacking yeah. option as well. So yeah, true. They, they lost that as well. So I think if they got, I think they just couldn't quite work out which direction they wanted to go. But it's it's really interesting to see what they do because, as I said, I don't think they're as bad. I mean, I think they were absolutely as bad as I've ranked them in this list, but I don't think they're that bad when you, you, you go um, when you look going forward. All right, yeah. Afghanistan. I think we all got to be excited, uh, Matt, uh, with Afghanistan after a couple of games. I still think, though, that they should have beaten Pakistan. My excitement yeah. was more on the Pakistan game than anything else. Um, but uh, let's be honest here. They do not have top-order players who can average 30 with a strike rate of 130. Um, they're pace bowlers. They literally had to, you know, unfreeze Hamid Hassan. Um and they have the best spin attack in the world, but they also don't kind of back it, if that makes sense. Like, they could have gone into this game with, you know, or they could have gone into this tournament and just gone, well, he, here's two leg spinners, uh, you know, here's Majib, here's Nabi, and here's, um, wa- wa- what's his name? Wakar Salim Kiel or Zahir Khan. They could have gone all in. They didn't even do that. They kind of, it ended up a lot of right arm medium pace that, like, people could hit. Yeah, they didn't even pick Case Ahmed, which I thought was one of the the worst selection calls of the World Cup. The fact he didn't even get in the squad, but yeah. um, that's what yeah. I mean. Like they 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 had even if they could have doubled down on that, and they didn't. And like I was watching them by the end of the tournament, going, "We've got a bunch of guys who can bowl 130 k's an hour. This looks like an associate team now." Yeah, and and also it's it's probably a. even more of a missed opportunity, given that the next World Cup is in Australia, where you would generally think that. Um, you know, obviously, Brisbane can do incredibly well in Australia mm. in T20s, but the fact that they don't have a genuine quick bowler is probably going to cost them more in that competition than it is uh, than than it would have in this one. So I think, yeah, maybe they should have just yeah gone all in on. They kind of went all in on their batting strategy of just we're going to hit and keep hitting. Um, yeah. Because obviously that Pakistan game probably summed it up. I can't remember exactly what they were off the power play, but something like forty-five for four, but just kept going. Um, they did have a tiny bit of consolidation, but it was still a pretty attacking partnership, even when they weren't scoring quickly. It was just the fact they kept hitting infielders. Um, yeah, I, I, I agree. I think they we maybe people did get a bit too excited. I think um, a few of the guys that... Um, I, I think you, you look at their top three of um, Zazai, Shazad and Gerbaz, and I don't think any of them got 100 runs, which I think... Yeah. It, it's pretty unexpected, really. I think Zazai has kind of been found out as having one or two shots. Um, Shazad is obviously relatively old. Gerbaz was disappointing given how promising he is, but he is only 19 or he's very young at least. Um, and, <laughs> um, he's only was, a certain age. <laughs> Najibullah was, was really good in the middle order, but yeah, mm. 
too often coming in at a point where um, there was no kind of platform for him to go from. So, well, it was um, him and Nabi really who were the two the best yeah. bats. Uh, and look, I've got no problem with Nabi. I mean, chances are he'll be saving them in the next tournament. But I think either Gavaz needs to get better. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying he can't do this because I think he has the ability to hit with a batting brain. Um, but they need. I think they need one guy in the top three who can. I don't know. Uh, you know, score forty runs, thirty five runs consistently at a good stroke, right? And then the rest of their tactic is I, I'm okay with it at that point, and it's just fine in that combination because on the tougher batting pitches, right? You need you need someone who has the other batting skills, and I don't know if they're ever going to have like a. Steve Smith type player or, you know, those sorts of players that they can drop in. But that if they can have at least one person to be able to do that, I've got no problem with everyone else just trying to hit sixes around them. But you, it's there were too many times where I thought, oh, my God, all you need now is someone to just chip it around for like four overs, two overs. Um, and they, they never had that player. Um, well, very maybe, interesting. Maybe they, maybe they did for like two games when Asghar Afghan was still pre-retirement. Because um, he was kind that. of doing that in that team, right? When he was yeah. meant to be... Um, at least, and then decided that it, actually, no, he, he didn't fancy it. He, he Once he played that game against Namibia and Abu Dhabi in front of 10 people, he decided that that was the pinnacle and he had to go. So yeah. His retirement. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah was, that, uh, I mean, the whole thing, the whole thing. I mean, the, the 2019 World Cup, uh, they fell apart as a team behind the scenes, like completely. It seems like this time, other than retiring one of their most respected players, they kind of kept it together a little bit. Um, the problem is, like, I've, I've talked to um, a lot of people in Afghanistan cricket about this. The Afghanistan team doesn't have a lot of pressure on it in between tournaments, right? Because they don't play against India and Australia and England. And, you know, it, uh, you know they play Ireland and they do okay. And, and, you know, they might lose to Zimbabwe or something. But it, there's, no, there's no huge amounts of disgust from the government. They go to a World Cup. And every single person with political connections suddenly comes out of the woodwork and it causes them, I think it causes them stress um, and they overreact to little things. Um, and look, it's not, it's, it's not good. Um, all right. Sri Lanka. So I, I, I wonder if the next tournament is too soon for them and they clearly need a single death bowler, which is funny being that Malinga was their guy for so long. Um, but their middle order uh, looks remarkable, and, and I I would assume that that middle order translates quite well to Australia because still in Australia you're going to have a lot of spin bold in those in those middle overs. Uh, where I've I've got them better than Afghanistan and worse than South Africa. That's about right, isn't it? But they could be they could make a play for the finals next time. Yeah, I think so. I think I I said at the um, time that it was a shame for them that the next comp is in Australia because I think if if it had been in the subcontinent, you know, you don't want to be too make too many stereotypical assumptions about their batters but i think in general they are better against um you know sri lanka have really struggled against um good leg spin over the past five years but generally i think it's not necessarily going to play to their batting lineup strengths to be playing on fast bouncy pitches um if that's what is served up in australia i'm kind of assuming that it will be um but yeah so earlier this year so in what was it end of june i think so uh, you know five months ago sri lanka came over to england and played uh, a three-match t20 series and a three-match odi series and it was actually pretty embarrassing for the most part not all their players played in it let's remember some of them that's were sent true home. <laughs> that's true but it, it, you know obviously they had this gaping hole that basically mickey after uh, mickey arthur after the series said you know, we lost numbers one, two, and four. 
which was Gunatilica, Dickweller, and Mendes. Um, you know, what are you meant to do in that situation? And they they were absolutely abject. I remember the last game of the T20 series was at the Aegeus Bowl. The first two had been in Cardiff, which, you know, those aren't really grounds that are going to suit them, either of them. Um, but at the Aegeus Bowl, I think England bowled the first 16 overs. They basically decided they were just going to experiment in game as one of those things that England do. So they just bowled all seam for the first 16 overs and then brought Rashid and Moen on for an overreach at the end at 100 for seven, chasing 170 or something like that. It was like a real sort of, um, they looked a complete rabble. Um, so then to turn up and do as well as they did, um, especially when you sort of look at the context of, so I, I, there was a point in the first game they played in the Super 12s, which was against Bangladesh and Sharjah, where I think they conceded 170 and were four down in the middle overs, kind of slightly yeah. behind the rate. Then Mawadullah gives them the two free overs of part-time offspin, which, you know, obviously they needed to score quickly, but you could very easily think, let's just try and take eight from this over. Let's hit one boundary off each of these overs. Let's settle in. Let's build a partnership. And instead, Asalanka and Rajapaksa, I think it was, um, just absolutely took it to pieces, took 31 from those two overs. They win that game. And that that kind of seems to, I don't know, I, I don't necessarily believe in lifting the belief across the camp or whatever, but I think it, it, it you know, you look at the way their tournament could have gone if they'd been beaten quite badly by Bangladesh and Sharjah in their first game versus how it ended up going, which was sort of, you know, one of the tournament's most exciting young teams, I guess. Um, and yeah, that I, was, think, I think that, it's probably fair to say that there was still a lot of flaws on show, but yeah. after that, after that, at least it felt like they were in every game. Uh, you know, they had, they had a moment. Um, and so if, if you look at it, they, their new ball bowling is, is very good. Their middle, middle overs bowling is quite good. Their middle overs batting is quite good. Their death batting... It worries me a little bit going forward. And their, their top order, I think they'll be able to find top order players who may mm. not be spectacular, be able to do enough. There's something there. And, you know, they will come into it with another tournament of of the Sri Lankan, uh, no, is it the Lankan Premier League? Sri Lankan Premier League is very dead. Um, yeah. And, and if you look at some of their players as well, like Avishka Fernando was sort of meant to be the number four and barely scored a run. But yeah. even still, they managed to to succeed around that they you know arguably should have beaten England in that game in Sharjah given um all the circumstances obviously Butler played an unbelievable innings but they they didn't bowl very well in the second half of that innings um and then with the bat when you consider sort of Mills pulling up and um England kind of getting their sums a little bit wrong and having to bowl spin at the death when it was probably the dewiest night of the whole tournament they probably should have won that game and I think maybe in a couple of years when they have a bit more experience they they find a way to to win that game yeah um but yeah, I think it, all told, when you look at where they were even five or six months ago as a T20 team to have competed as well as they did, um, to have had the leading wicket taker in the comp as well, and Hasaranga obviously played yeah. a lot of games, but um, that was that was pretty pretty great. And the fact that they have ninety mile an hour bowlers again, where you know you look at a team like Afghanistan, what they would give to have someone like Shamira or uh, Kumara in their team, that would be huge. Hasaranga plays on a team that makes the semi-finals. He might, he probably steals the player of the tournament award, doesn't he? Not even steals yeah. it. I mean, he. You could argue that he probably was the player of the tournament anyway. Yeah. Um, but they were obviously going to give it to Warner or Zampa by the end. Uh, South Africa. Now, I didn't know where to put South Africa in this list because their record <laughs> looks great four and one, right? And I and I, I don't think they're that good, even slightly. Let me let me go through. I think they should have lost the game to Sri Lanka. Had Sri Lanka had. Um, any more sense, Sri Lanka win that game easily. And I think that England took that last game off 
because once they qualified, um, they you know they kept the score to within a reasonable amount, um, and they didn't get it. That would have meant that um, South Africa would have had a two and three record, right? Now, I'm, I'm not, not even if it's three and two. I just they don't bat very fast at the top, and they have a lot of bowlers who can't bat. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not sold on this team. I know they did well. Yeah. It's a great bowling attack, but none of them can bat. I, yeah, well, I, I do think that they made quite a good couple of moves with um, in in that last game. I thought having obviously, you know, you would say that it was a good move because both of them scored runs. But having Van der Dusen at three and Markram at four seemed to work really well because Markram is not an obvious number four. He opened literally his whole career. I think he was saying since he was eleven years old or something like that. So they moved Didn't him they down to number four for the. Uh, Punjab. Yeah, so they, I think they moved him down earlier in the year. Then Punjab used him in the same role. Every, you know, yeah. they signed they signed him as a seemingly middle order player, and everyone was like, "This is a one of those incredibly weird replacements where a team yeah. signs someone they don't know what his role is and hope that it goes okay." Whereas actually, it kind of seemed like he did pretty well for Pun. Well, he did well enough for Punjab in the second half of the IPL, um, and then yeah, had had a pretty good World Cup. I don't know whether he was in. I think he was in the official team of the tournament. Um, uh, you know, read into that what you want to, but um, you know, shows that it shows that he did pretty well at least. Um, but yeah, it, it was a really strange side. You're right because they they kind of split the fifth bowler overs between Markram, who's an incredibly limited off spinner, and then Pretorius, who kind of bowled pretty well, but um, mainly coming on in the 16th over or something like that, and just randomly bowling some cutters and doing pretty well at the death. Um, so yeah, it was a it, it was a pretty weird team. And throughout, I was kind of thinking, if only they had. Tahir plus Morris plus De Villiers plus whoever, but then Faf. equally, yeah, Faf. Um, but then equally, they end with, yeah, as you say, you know, go out. I think they were the first team ever to go out having only lost one game uh, since the Super Tens or Super Twelve started. So, so Petorius <laughs> is one of the people that makes me think that this is not a great team. Like his international records are current, is currently better than his domestic record. At one stage, I don't remember if you remember, but he bowled a back of the hand slower ball, and and Dale Stain said he doesn't even bowl that. And he was a half tracker back of the hand slower ball that I think got I can't remember who it got out. It might have been Moen or someone. It got it dismissed them, and then he he did it again, and I couldn't tell if he was doing it on purpose, which was insane, <laughs> but maybe. Or if it was by accident. But the next ball, he did it again. Chris Wokes came in and I think flat batted it over like mid-off for six. It was uh, He did brilliantly, but what he was doing is unsustainable to keep them um, good. And also, his, his batting, I think he's a very, like at the franchise level below sort of, you know, IPL and PSL, I think he's a really, really good player. But at the World Cup level in a semi-final, is he really the guy you want to be bowling one or two death overs? And, you know, if you lose... If you lose five quick wickets in the twelfth over, do you really want him coming out to bat? Like it's yeah. th- there's a lot going on with that team. They were one of those really odd teams as well. That sort of you have a guy like Pretorius at number seven, neither really batting or bowling. I think he barely fa- he faced something like five balls across the whole comp. Um, but he's in. They're in this really weird spot where you have someone who's in as kind of like a hitting all rounder mainly at number mm. seven. But then because of the fact you have kind of I think four number nine or tens rather than um, anyone who can genuinely hit boundaries at the death. Like, I don't really think maybe Rabard is okay at number eight, but it, it feels a bit toppy to me. So you can't really exploit that batting de- depth. Plus also, I don't know, Bavuma is obviously a tricky one because he's captain and you have to have a certain number of black players on the side for trans- transformation reasons. He's not a natural T20 player. He's kind of done okay in a particular role, but um, he's, he's not necessarily the easiest guy to fit into the side. Um, 
yeah, I, I think it's a it, it's a tricky team where they couldn't really they won't you wouldn't really be able to define them as like a batting heavy team or a bowling heavy team mm. or a any distinctive style of play other than the fact that they they're kind of like in Australia they chucked a load of players on the pitch and hoped it worked but probably had slightly less good players than Australia did. Well, I mean, it did work. To be fair, they ended up with four and one. Just, <laughs> yeah, true. You know, yeah, true. You know, it, it, they weren't that far away. All right, we're talking about tricky teams. India. So my 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 strong thought is so I've just said that South Africa had a four and one record, and I think that flattered them. I think India had a three and two record, and I think that was maybe not unfortunate, but I didn't think they were that bad a team at all. Um, you know, they their top order collapsed in two key games. They probably should have picked Siraj, and they don't have a world class leg spinner that they. They, they trust at the moment. I think that those, those are all fair things. But essentially, you would not expect that top order to fail in two key games. Yeah, I think if you were to re-simulate this World Cup, if you go back to October 23 and play the whole World Cup again with everything equal from where it was, except everything's now random again and, you, you know, toss results go a, a different way or something like that, you'd probably still back India to reach the final more often than not and definitely to reach the semifinals almost every time. Um they had two really bad games and that killed them because the way the group worked out, you could only lose one. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I don't think India is suddenly an awful team. And I was sort of thinking through it as well. I was at the Namibia game, which was one of the most incredibly weird um, sort of spectacles I've ever seen. Where you had Obviously, they'd sold loads of tickets in advance and everyone still came. So it was a full house for a completely dead game where I turned up, I think, I don't know, 45 minutes before the toss and saw the Indian team bus playing at the same time. So I thought this doesn't necessarily um, suggest that they're taking it too seriously. But yeah, I was at that game and I was kind of thinking to myself, what can I write as an angle for this? And was thinking, oh, can I say you don't want to pick Kohli for the next tournament or something like that? And then I was looking at it and thinking, you're playing a T20 World Cup in Australia. You definitely want Kohli. You definitely, <laughs> you probably want Rohit, given his record in Australia. I don't think they're actually going to change very much between now and the next World Cup. And obviously, there are some things that you could say. Uh, you know, uh, clearly the fatigue factor is relevant. Clearly, the fact that they lost two tosses is relevant. Um, you know, maybe there is some something where it's harder for Indian players to perform at international level because there's all this external noise and pressure on them. Uh, maybe they picked a few of the wrong players. Like they kind of like. Yeah, I didn't think Shami was a great pick. I didn't think Taku was a great pick. I didn't think Jadeja was a great pick. But they weren't awful picks. They weren't enough that you should suddenly I can't say this didn't is a think terrible Jadeja team. Was a good pick, but I'm not even. Well, pick no, I think he, I think he was a solid pick, but I think they kind of picked him as like a they kind of picked him as a bowler as much as anything. It, it felt yeah. like at least I think if you were picking him as a hitter, dif- different. But I think his bowling was not great. I think if him and Hardik, him and Hardik is a good fifth bowler. Yeah, yeah, fair, yeah. Fair. So I don't have any problem with that. But the funny thing is, you've just said. That Shami's not a good pick, and I agree with you. And, and and obviously, I think you said I think you said the Lord as well. So you get attacked in the comments. <laughs> yeah. But but the thing is that they didn't lose their games because of the bowlers, right? Yeah, I think yeah. They most lost of the because... worst selections were in the bowling, and they didn't lose because of that. And and if you think about it, for me and you, we probably think that their batting is too anchor heavy. And again, mm. their anchors didn't make any runs. Yeah. So if they'd gone with the more showy batters. You know, so that's why I find them, you know, I, I find it really, really interesting. Like, you, I kept looking for, like, the obvious thing that said that this was a bad T20 team. And it's like, it, I, I just don't think it is a bad T20 team. I think it probably is, you know, uh, in the top four or five teams and they didn't make the semifinal. I, I also think we had no idea that Pakistan and New Zealand were going to be this good. Everyone said the other group was the group of death. It was yeah. not. India ended up in the group of deaths because I still believe that Pakistan, um, 
India and New Zealand were three of the top four teams. I, I don't think Australia was in the top um, five team. Uh, sorry, in the top four teams when it comes to talent, which tells you how random all this sort of stuff is. All right, we've done them. Let's see if you can annoy some Pakistani fans. See, I, <laughs> Pakistan is so weird. I almost ranked them ahead of New Zealand, despite the fact New Zealand made the final. And I still almost want to slip them up now. They, they are designed to bat slow. And then find and then go completely nuts at the end, right? And they're never going to be out of the game with their bowling, right? And it didn't work in one game. And yeah, you know, and I saw people saying things like, "Oh, you know, Baba needed to do this, or you needed to." Sc-. And I was like, "But it worked in every other game." Like, I'm not saying it's my strategy; it's not how I would want to play T20. But it worked in every other game except the one that they needed. Yeah, it's tough. I wrote a piece after that semi-final where I tried to sort of look at Baba's innings and say. Was this good? Was this bad? Um, where he got he got thirty nine off thirty four, I think, and was the slowest scoring batter in the game. And it was a little bit shades of Rahane twenty sixteen, but then equally, I don't know. It, he's kind of started similarly in, as you say, every game that they've ever played. Um, when it works, it works really well. He got out playing his something like seventh attacking shot, happened to find a fielder out of thirty four balls. Um, and they still got a score that they would have backed themselves to defend more often than not. They bowled really badly at the death. Um, yeah. And Hassan Ali dropped a really easy catch and then Wade hit three sixes. So it, it's also worth remembering that, like, yeah, you know, a lot of people say, oh, it's, you know, they, they did really well when, when the toss went their favor and whatever. And then the one game the toss didn't go their favor. Um, Marcus Stoinis, like, I think it was in the 13th over, muscles a ball off, I think, Shadab Khan over mid-wicket, and he beats mid-wicket by about a foot and a half over his head. And it was a desperation shot because Australia needed some runs at that stage and they needed to, to put Pakistan a bit on the back foot for a second. That gets caught. Pakistan win that game by maybe 40 runs, right? Yeah. Like, it's very possible that, you know, you bring on um, you bring on the quicks, that you know, the two big quicks, and they run through the middle or, or low order. Or Pat Cummins has to face spin. Oh, dear. You know, good luck. <laughs> Pat Cummins facing spin, right? All those things are very possible. They had a very, very good tournament, and I'm not sure. I, my only thing is, if they're going to be that predictable to allow for Aaron Finch to basically put all their fifth bowling overs in the first ten overs, surely they have to make. They have to just be a bit smarter. But but if Bubba and Rizwan are going to average about fifty each, right? One of them has to be like one. We we have to just slog against Mitchell Marsh. I, and, and that was and the thing. It was so weird as well because I feel like Rizwan actually played. I think I was looking through the numbers on it on the night because obviously Baba didn't play very many attacking shots. Rizwan played a load of attacking shots but didn't hit many of them very cleanly because well partly because of the fact that he'd spent two nights in ICU and yeah. was you know clonked on the green in the 12th over or something like that by Stark and you know it, it wasn't like he wasn't swinging it, he genuinely was really trying quite hard I thought in that semi-final at least to score pretty quickly um, but just you know circumstances meant that it was pretty tough for him to do it what I do think about Pakistan what does feel like a massive missed opportunity is the fact that they are they have such a good record in UAE they are a team mm. very very much set up to play at ho- to play well at home Freudian slip but play mm. games in UAE um so to have sort of had such a good tournament for so much of it and then make those small errors at the end, which cost them, they probably won't get as good a chance to win a T20 World Cup in the next two editions, maybe three, depending on venues and stuff like that. Um, so it does, does because of that, feel like a massive missed opportunity. Equally, as you say, I don't think they're, I don't think the fact that they lost that semi-final means they're suddenly a bad team or that their way of playing is fundamentally broken. It's not. Yeah, it's not necessarily the the way that, you know, if I were going into a 
franchise team, I wouldn't say pick two guys who score quite slowly and hope that everyone else hits. But, um, you know, it, it, it could could very easily have won them that World Cup. It just happened not to because a lot of random shit happens in World Cups. It is also worth noting, I think this is extraordinary, that this was very Asian conditions. Maybe it didn't spin, but certainly kept very, very low. We're in the UAE. And only one Asian team made it to the semifinal yeah. and none of them made it to the finals, which which might say a little bit more about just how bad Sri Lanka is at the moment um, and India just, you know, got, um, uh, struggling a little bit. But it, it's still phenomenal to me. Uh, New Zealand, I don't think enough has been made of the fact that in the final they didn't have uh, you know, access to Lockheed Ferguson and obviously Conway didn't play in that. We talked a lot about England injuries and we, we'll talk about that in a little while. I still think that they got nothing in this tournament really out uh, Allen didn't play. Uh, Phillips, I don't think, made any runs. Uh, Seifert played one game. I think that there's a lot that they could do. Their bowling is going to be around for the next tournament, so that's not going to be a problem for them. I do wonder, though, if they're ever going to be able to overcome for the fact that Santner and Sodi are both set up to bowl to right-handers. And they, as far as I'm aware, uh, you know, unless Anton Devsic has suddenly had a late career surge, I'm not sure they have another... Well, even actually, he spins it the same way as those two do. But they really need to find someone who can spit it the other way. Oh no, it's what's his name, isn't it? The um, uh, who, the uh, uh, the Dutch player is he got New Zealand oh, citizenship? Ripping. Yeah, <laughs> he might be their best chance. But I mean, that that is a huge flaw in what is actually a fairly decent team. The only other problem I could see in this team is that I think Nisham and Santner are probably both batting one spot too high. Like if yeah. you're doing a perfect team, it was quite. It, they they almost managed to get away with it though because that England semi final. England batted, I think Moen and Milan faced something like 68 out of the 120 balls that England faced in that semi-final. And, you know, Williamson, you know, maybe he shouldn't have bowled Glenn Phillips run over. It didn't go particularly well. Um, and maybe he should have tried Santner at least against Moen, but, you know, Moen scores quicker than spin against pretty much anyone. Um, and, yeah, I, I don't know. I think they kind of got away with it because I thought Williamson in that in the semi-final captain really quite well and captain quite aggressively because there was a point, I think, from 14th, 14th over to 16th over, he brought back the three quicks, which wasn't the obvious thing to do, where he had Milne, Sally and Bolt each bowled and over then, which meant you had to have Sodi and Nisham bowling one yeah. each in the final four. And it actually did work because I think those three overs, I think there was one four, one six, and uh, Saudi got Milan out caught behind, which broke the partnership. Um, and meant that on a pitch where it was clearly not that easy to start for anyone apart from Nishim right at the end when it was a little bit um, a little bit dewy. Um, yeah, I, I think he captained pretty well in that game. I thought by contrast in the final, I thought he was a bit predictable, but equally, as we'll probably come on to when we talk about Australia, um, it's really, really difficult to know who to bowl when you have Warner and Marsh um, mm. batting together because they're this almost like a dream complementary pair where you have like... Warner, who is short left-handed and really good against spin, and Marsh, who is tall right-handed and really good against pace. And if if they're clever about the fact that they can just take a single here and there, then it's really hard to know what to do. It, it, I did feel it was a bit captaincy by numbers because he just bowled the three quicks for six overs in the power play. Then he brought yeah. on the spinners. Then he brought on the sixth bowler. And it was a bit... Maybe he needed to do something a little bit different given they clearly needed to take five or six wickets to win that game. Um, but, yeah, I think... I don't know. I don't really know what I feel about New Zealand generally. I, I feel like they made some calls before the tournament that I thought were really um, sort of boring and negative by not picking Munro, not picking Allen, leaving Milne yeah. in the reserve, stuff like that. But then equally, you know, Mitchell had a really good comp as an opener 
um, like, you know, he scored, what, 49 against India and 70-something against England. Then uh, Milne, when he came in, was solid, but not amazing um, and didn't exactly prove that he should mm. definitely have been in from the start, uh, especially when you consider they would have ideally picked Lockie in that attack. Um, and yeah, may, you know, maybe Munro would have been a, been a useful guy to have in the squad. Maybe he would have been, a, you know, especially in the final, they didn't have Conway, they didn't have a left-hander through the middle. Maybe he would have been useful, but I don't feel like those calls were massively wrong. I feel like New Zealand just kind of did, did the New Zealand thing where they have a group of quite solid players. They played, they scheduled quite cleverly at last summer. They played a ton of T20 cricket. They got guys like mm. Salvi and Bolt who hadn't played well, Bolt more so had played more games, but Salvi, Salvi, for example, hadn't played a huge block of T20 cricket for a while, but he played something like 12 T20 internationals last New Zealand summer. Gets a load of match practice. They kind of punch above their weight, the classic cliche that you throw around and say they're nice guys and say, doesn't Kane have a nice beard and all this stuff? Um, and then lost because they kind of got bullied in the final by Australia. So, um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't really know what I make of this New Zealand team. I don't think it's a team where... I don't look at it and think, oh yeah, they're definitely going to win the next one. But then I didn't think they were going to win this one, and a couple of things go their way in the final, or you know, they mm. they weren't they weren't that far off winning the final if they batted a bit more with a bit more intent right at the start and take a couple of Australian wickets, which is doable. And if Lockie's fit and that sort of thing, they could easily have won this one. So yeah, I don't know. They're just a weird team. I don't really know what to think about them. Does Martin Guptill play in the next tournament? Um. If I'm picking the team, probably not. I mean, I it, think he probably it, will. He's so hard to drop, but at the same time, they've got other guys who look. At, uh, they won't. Obviously, he's got what three thousand international T20 runs and has played around the world. And it will be in Australia, um, although there'll be a lot of left arm seamers as well. Um, there's there's reasons to pick him, but you you look at their team at the moment and you're like, God, if if Mitchell could just bat like Mitchell, which is going to be bombing the odd ball, um, striking at around 130 and being quite solid, would you not be better off to chuck one of the absolute loose units next to him <laughs> and just see what happens? I'm not sure if their team's set up for that. If Nisham's going to have to bat at six, which he probably will next tournament as well, they probably think we can't make that choice. But realistically, they could have a very, very different kind of team if they wanted to um, mm. and, and go about that. But... It's fascinating to me whether the Guptill plays in the next tournament. Yeah, well, I suppose I'm I'm reluctant to say he definitely shouldn't because I think Finn Allen, for example, you look at him and think he should be brilliant by the time there's the next the yeah. next World Cup comes around. He's got another season under his belt, which is massive at that age in his development. Equally, he's really similar to someone like Tom Banton, who has done incredibly well in domestic cricket, playing on tiny grounds and smashing pace and getting away with misses against spin. And it's really difficult to know whether that's going to translate um, well, whether his development's going to keep going as it has, whether it's going to completely stagnate because teams find him out and there's some massive weakness that we haven't quite clocked onto yet. Um, so I'm, I'm reluctant to say Finn Allen must play and, you know, ditch Guptill at this point. I, I would, a year out, I would probably lean towards saying, yeah, probably don't bother with Guptill. Um, but think, then equally, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have picked Saudi in this World Cup squad, and he he <laughs> was really good until Warner bullied him a bit in the final. I think if if it's me and I'm New Zealand, I I just say to Martin Guptill, look, we're not saying you're not going to go, but we know exactly what you can do. Go out, play as much franchise cricket as, as as you need. You keep yourself in position. We're just going to try Finellan between now and the World Cup, right? And we might only try him for 
10 games and we might decide that there's no point uh, replacing him. We bring you back. We might give him all the games and then you might still get picked for the World Cup. But I think that is a conversation that needs to be had of, because if Finn Allen can be Finn Allen at the international level, this team is way better, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a complete, at the moment, you're just like, okay, Mitchell's okay, but he's probably not going to kill us. Kane's not going to kill us unless he flips the switch. And, you know, even that takes him a while generally to flip a switch. And Martin Guptill, not the player he once was. Um, and occasionally, one in four times, he's still going to be Guptill probably and, and smash you in the head. But it's not the Guptill of, you know, a few years ago where he did that consistently. That's the top three that you're like, you can handle. You put fin- a fully functional Finn Allen, that is not an easy sentence to say, um, into that top three. Um, and suddenly it's completely different. So yeah. I think I I think I have a better idea of New Zealand than you do, but it would be really interesting to see where they they are for that next tournament. I'm assuming that Ferguson, Milne, and Bolt are their three seamers, and Ferguson basically helps them at both ends a little bit. But yeah, it's fascinating. It's fascinating what what sort of changes. Anyway, whatever they do, they'll do it at the last minute like they did with Mitchell. But um, England, okay, I've got them ahead of. Uh, Pakistan and New Zealand, based on the fact that they made the semi-final look like their best team, or at least equal best team, with Pakistan, with five frontliners missing, which I think is phenomenal. And they probably haven't got because they didn't make the final. No one really cares anymore. Um, and I'm willing to say that they probably win the South African game. I know that's going to annoy people. They're obviously brilliant at understanding their depth chart. In that Chris Wokes basically wasn't playing T20 cricket, and suddenly he's one of the best bowlers in the tournament. Death bowling has become the story. But you put Joffre back in that team, I'm not sure it matters as much. And I'm assuming Adil and Moeen will ride against in the next World Cup. That's their biggest problem, I think, when those two go. But up until now, still looks like a good team to me. I know it's old and a lot of people are worried about the age. It still looks good to me. Yeah, I, I would basically agree with pretty much everything you said. I think throughout the comp, my thought with England was that they could have, and especially in the semi-final when they had the Roy injury, which made them make the choice. I think they should have picked an extra seam bowling all-rounder. Um, so in that semi-final, I would probably have picked Willie. I might even have picked Curran rather than um, Billings. I don't think in and of themselves, they would have made a huge difference at the death because I don't think either of them is a brilliant death bowler. Willie's a new ball bowler who can bowl an over at the death. Curran is a death bowler who has been found out quite a lot. Um, but I think that what they could have done if they picked those guys is made the rest of the attack more effective. So you wouldn't have ended up with Wokes bowling at the death because Wokes was brilliant with the new ball across the comp and he bowled three death overs in the comp, which went for 57 between them, um, which is, you know, horrible. But um, and you don't, you know, you don't want to suddenly criticize him for doing something that he has no. basically never done. Um, we, saw, we saw Hazelwood go for runs at the death again. Yeah. Again, not a death bowler at this stage. Maybe maybe never will be like Wokes. So I think that's fair. I think the killer point, though, with this balance thing is that it's not going to be an issue next time because Stokes is almost certainly going to play. Yep. Sam Curran will be available. Archer can hit from down the order. Um, you know, they will have an extra... Mills will presumably... Well, you know, you don't want to be too presumptuous with Mills' fitness, but there's a chance he's fit and able to mm. play um, in a knockout game, for example. So suddenly you have a squad where balance isn't an issue and the big question of should we go batter heavy, should we go bowling heavy, you can kind of be just a well-rounded team because you have um, seven bowling options and a load of batting depth. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I I agree. I think England were really good. I think they were pretty unfortunate with injuries. Um, I think they the, the semi was quite a weird game in a lot of ways because I felt like they did leave a little bit out there with the bat, but I don't think it was necessarily through lack of intent. I think they, it just didn't suit them as a pitch. 
like didn't really suit their batting lineup. And then with the ball, you know, obviously they bowled badly at the death, but equally New Zealand scored 57 runs, needed 57 runs in four overs, which no one had ever done before in a men's T20 international um, and did it in three, which is kind of one of those freak things where you kind of, yeah, there's a risk of over-analysis if you say England are some terrible team where and they're all past it because they lose a game like that. It's I think it, that goes back to the Australian-Pakistan game as well. Like, to be five wickets down for that long, knowing that you only have, you know, you have Pat Cummins and Mitchell Stark to swing at the end, we, you have to be realistic here that Pakistan and England were incredible teams uh, throughout this this tournament. And then at the end, they got, you know, some some's for their own fault, some through injury, some through just happens. Like, you know, you could put you could put all the guys, you know, you could put Mitchell and Nisham and um, Wade and Stoinis out in that situation again, and they hit the, the second ball straight up in the air. Like, they, you know, we because this is such a silly tournament, we overemphasize all these things, whereas I still think that England and Pakistan are really good. I don't think England are as good as they were in the golden generation where they can bat down to number 9, 10, and 11. Like, I don't think they have that in them anymore. But, um, you know, uh, there's so much talent there. And as you said, the, the I, I think they might be a better – when Joffre, because of Joffre almost on his own, I just think they're a better bowling lineup now than they were at that sort of peak period before. Yeah. But I also wonder if this is like the one that they were ready for um, and, you know, because I would have thought if England if England stuff up and, like, Pakistan and India and, I don't know, maybe Sri Lanka from nowhere make the final, you go, oh, this is the Asian final, right? Maybe that's just what happens. But the fact that the two other teams were the Western teams, like, mm. if I was in England, I'd just be like, damn it, this was a chance to – yeah. and there's no way – and we'll go into Australia right now, but there's no way of saying that – Either New Zealand or England or Australia are better T20 teams than England when fully fit. You, you, you can argue that you know um, uh, Australia might have more talent in sort of certain areas, and New Zealand might be um, uh, led better and you know have have a you know re- really better bowling attack and batting compared and all those sorts of things. But realistically, I think England's a better team. But let's finish with Australia. I feel like it's almost pointless at this point to do analysis on Australia. Because uh, it doesn't matter. They're just going to turn up at the next tournament with a bunch of people that are talented and they'll either, it'll either work or it won't work. It probably won't work next time and it probably won't work for the next couple of tournaments. Then they'll win another one and it won't matter. My, my interest is, is they've won this almost accidentally at a certain point, right? And a lot of things came together, like the whole Mitch Marsh thing. Mitch, I don't think Mitch Marsh was ever in their plans. Marcus Stoinis went off to the IPL. Matthew Wade worked at number seven, right? Yeah, all these, you know, Zappa's probably had the, almost the best player in the tournament, right? Um, all these different things that's happened. Is there a possibility, though, that this actually makes Australian cricket go, we could actually, we've got some players now, we can do some stuff going forward, or do you think they won't do that and they'll just go back to being just, ah, we'll just pick some good players and maybe it'll work? <laughs> I've absolutely no idea. It's it's The whole Australia thing is so funny because, of as you say, it's, it's kind of like a, a mix of some things that looked like a plan and some things that happened to go well and some things that 
fell into place and yeah you know because there was a part of it I, I did this piece before the final on Australia's sort of long slash medium term vision with T20 and sort of what had happened and the fact that they were number one for a bit when Langer was committed to basically making them like a different version of Perth Scorchers from when he used to coach them in the BBL and they had they still had Agar at seven and they had a five bowler team and then he just kind of changed it and it worked and they won a World Cup basically because they won four games in a row because they batted down to number seven and Wade has always been an opener. They've tried him a few times at like four or five and he's faced a load of spin and it's been awful. So they just thought, oh, well, if we bat him at seven, he probably won't actually have to face much spin. Mm. And then in the semi, he faces one ball of spin, which he is a dot and faces 16 balls of pace, which go for 41 and he wins in the game. So, um, and then I was thinking about, as you mentioned, Stoyness in the IPL. Has the IPL been good for them? Well, yes, in a way, because um, Stoyness had that experience as a finisher. Um, you know, Hazelwood and Cummins, I don't know, would they would they care as much about T20 cricket if they couldn't earn quite a lot of money from going off and playing in the IPL? Would they improve as much? Probably not. I think um, I think Cummins always cared. I, only, I, I remember meeting Cummins when he was really young and, and having a chat with him, and I got the feeling that he really liked T20 cricket, like him and his friends. They're all big cricket nerds, him and his friends, and he was, he yeah. was talking about stuff. Hazelwood clearly didn't. Right? I mean, yeah, exactly. He didn't no play. Was there. it three games of five years or something? It's yeah, ridiculous. He, he wasn't playing it. He wasn't interested. And and, and so it's fair. So, yeah, I, it, it, the whole thing is really interesting and how they go about. And also, there's been. Australia have turned up in a lot of tournaments with seven batters before, right? They've done it in World, you know, in one day World Cups and all sorts of things. It's very rare, though, that their batters are off the chain. The thing I thought that was different this time is. They just basically said to their batters, look, go out there and hit the ball. Because Mitchell, uh, Mitchell Marsh is not even a frontline batter, right? Like, I mean, he's, you know, <laughs> he, he's almost like a pinch hitter in, in this role. Saying to him, mate, just hit the ball hard. The ball, if, if it's fast, hit it hard. If it's, if it's slow, turn it around for one. And if you feel like slog sweeping, have a slog sweep. That, that isn't even the team that I saw start the tournament. Remember, against South Africa, they were just, what, 125? And yeah. they were batting like grandmas, man. Marsh got 11 off 17 in that oh game. I, it actually stood out how weird an innings it is. You have a guy who's, as you say, basically a pinch hitter, and he comes in and gets 11 off 17. I, don't, but then I also yet- feel sorry to grandmas. They were worse than that. They were so bad <laughs> in that game. Um, and uh, it turns out that was the only game they were going to lose. But, yeah, they just I, I, I just thought that, that they... They seem to just say to their batters, go for it, which I think is a much better... If, if, if they did that every time with the amount of talent that is going to come out of Australian cricket, I kind of feel like they probably would, even without planning and doing things right, they probably just win slightly more tournaments. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like- it, it was... It was, it was really, one of the things that I found really funny, actually, was um, when Langer was talking after the semi-final against Pakistan and basically saying, look, we just told everyone to be really aggressive and, you know, the fact that Stoinis hit that six that actually you mentioned earlier off Shadab, I think was the ball after Shadab's fourth wicket. Yeah. Um, so they, it, he was kind of using this great example of the fact that Shadab took, what, four for 25 or something like that because of the fact that they kept top edging sweeps up in the air. And he could very easily have had five for 20 if Stoinis's six had not cleared him. But he was like, oh, yeah, it was great. We were all aggressive and positive. And I was like, well, this is kind of massively random. But yeah, equally, um, you know, they got smashed by England. Um, decided that they weren't going to bother with Agar and were going to go all in on bat deep and kept on chasing. And you can kind of, I don't know, I feel as though you can probably utilize batting depth more when you're chasing um, because you have that cushion and, and sort of you don't have to be second guessing what you need to be um, going for. I think it's easier when you have a target in mind and 
um, when you're sort of guessing what par is and adding 15 to it or whatever you think you need to. Um, so yeah, it was it was all pretty pretty weird. But then you know um, they absolutely smashed New Zealand in the final. Um, back to the IPL thing as well. You know Warner in a way was helped by the fact that he didn't play in the IPL and wanted to stick two fingers up at everyone. Yeah. But equally, it wasn't great prep. The fact that he was not playing and was sat in the stands in Dubai waving that flag and. Um, oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> I had forgotten about that flag, <laughs> um, which was like you know just an iconic image at the time of Warner's decline in a picture, and then suddenly um, you know six weeks later, something like that, he's man of the tournament in the World Cup. So um, yeah, none of it made a huge amount of sense, but I don't think they really care that much, and um, it all got pissed and had a great time by the looks of things, and they're probably going to try and follow exactly the same thing next time where they hope that they win a few series between now and then, but it's not the end of the world if they don't because they'll chuck all of the, they'll chuck what they see as the 15 best players in Australia into the squad and hope that it wins them the next World Cup. And, you know, it's probably a what one in six chance it does. So thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jared. <laughs> Thanks for listening to Red Inca. There is more information on my guests available in the show notes, including their Twitter profiles, if they have one. This is the important bit, though. Please review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere, really. Share it on all the social medias and just get it out there. If you can, act it out in plays on your balcony with your loved ones. This podcast is made possible by the people who support us at Patreon, so thanks to those who already do. And there is a link to Patreon in the show notes as well. Red Inca is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston makes everything sound better for your ears and the theme tune is called The Prisoner by the Red Crickets. Sports Social Podcast Network. As a trans woman, I'm all about feeling confident and proud. That includes knowing my HIV status and choosing how to get tested. With a free HIV self-test, I got my results in just 20 minutes in the privacy of my own space. Be confident and proud. Find out about free HIV self-testing options in your area at cdc.gov slash HIV self-testing.